All right, we'll go to Matthew 23 and pick up where we left this morning. And where we left this morning was with polished cups and saucers. And now we're going to talk about whitewashed tombs. We're going to begin our reading in verse 27, which is a new page in my Bible. And we're going to read through 32 of Matthew 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones, and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up, then, the measure of your fathers. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We pray we take seriously these woes, these curses upon this group of religious hypocrites. Let it not be us, Father, that speak of our good works, saying, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and done many wonderful works? Only to hear that dreaded phrase, depart from me, worker of iniquity. I never knew you. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Let us first set the stage. During Passover season, thousands, tens of thousands of pilgrims poured into Jerusalem, traversing the countryside, following old paths and roads from all corners. Along the way, these pilgrims might look for a cave to take a rest from the sun or a shelter to lodge for the night. However, poor country folk in Palestine used many of these caves as burial places for their dead. Their ancestors might be buried in one of these little caves or coves and sealed with a rock that if a traveler might dislodge, he would find a decomposing body or bones within them. Not only would this be shocking and embarrassing for the traveler or the pilgrim, but it would also render him ceremonially unclean. And this being Passover would preclude him entering into the temple for worship, making his trip a waste. For this reason, the local peasants along the way would mark their natural tombs with fresh wine for Passover season, essentially whitewashing them so passersby could beware and avoid the graves. So they just got a fresh coat of paint every year right before Passover. And the the countryside would have been gleaming with these white, shining rocks. Everyone knowing what that meant. Don't go in. Don't rest here. It's a grave. A few points on this before we move forward. Jesus was a timely preacher. He picked up on the season and times and was always fresh with his illustrations. You remember when he was on the hillside country, he spoke of the lilies of the field, how they toil not, neither do they spin. Yet even Solomon was not arrayed in all his glory 
as one of these. But you can imagine as he was giving that preaching, along the hillside, spring flowers were in bloom. And the people could easily see that the beauty and the artful, resplendent blooms of spring happened with no gardener, no planter, but just as the work of God. So therefore, what does it mean? Well, Jesus asks a rhetorical question at the close of his illustration, saying, Wherefore, if God so clothe the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? What's the lesson? There's no amount of hand-wringing or staying up all night that's going to make up for your lack of anything. It's purely through God, through faith and trust and prayer, not spinning and toiling where God will meet your need. So isn't it great that Jesus was a timely preacher? So no, we know it's Passover season because Jesus was crucified at Passover. So we're just days before. So every pilgrim that was coming into the temple would have been very familiar with the white washed rocks along the way and would totally understand and they would get the point white and shiny on the outside decrepit and dead and filthy and unclean on the inside that is a pharisee that is pretty startling really a second point i'd like to make understand that the people of god always care for their own dead. This is true from the beginning of the Bible to the end. God's people, believers, have always had a high regard and respect for the bodies of their loved ones. They did not burn, destroy, mar, or otherwise disrespect the bodies of their dearly departed. We understand that Israel was rocky ground, And so burying like we do today, you know, I was at that conference in Maine and I sat across from a fella, (laughs) happy-go-lucky guy, and uh, I said, where are you from? And he just laughed. I'm from Glen Rock, Wyoming. I said, oh, and that's where the Suttons are this week. They're with this man. He's just a man in their church. And I said, what do you do for a living? He said, I'm a grave digger. (laughs) And he just, (laughs) I said, oh. Goes, oh yeah, you know, I got a bobcat and I dig graves and that's what I do. And he was telling me all about it. And I'm thinking, okay, he's happy about it. He's a very happy grave digger. And um, he had his whole family, his little girls were there. And, but their ability, they didn't have bobcat, okay, machines in Israel. The ground was rocky. So in every cave or cove was stored a crypt of a body of their loved ones. Now, the rich and wealthy, the well-heeled in Palestine, carved their tombs. They carved them out for their use. We know Joseph of Arimathea, as a rich man in Israel, had carved out of a rock, had carved a tomb. And so Jesus Christ was laid in that tomb, and the Bible says of that tomb, never in wherein where any man had ever been laid. It was carved for him and his family. But the peasants, the poor folk, would just have to find a place. 
But th- this goes all the way back to the beginning. If you study in the book of Genesis and 22 and different places, you could go through the, the various chapters. You see that Abraham paid a very high price for the cave of Mamre, for the burying place of him and his children. And they said to Abraham, the children of Heth said, we'll give it to you. We'll just give it to you. You can have it. To which Abraham said, I will not take it from you. I will pay for it. What was he saying? What he was saying is, if you give it to me, you'll use the land around it to grow crops, therefore precluding access to my burial ground by your use of this land for agricultural purposes. So what Abraham said, what I want to do is not you to give me the cave. I'm going to give you, and I forget how many pieces of silver it was, but it was a lot. I want to buy the parcel of land. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay for all the productivity of this land for all your generations, and I'm going to own it, title and deed to it. And the children of Heth said, well, if he wants to buy it and he wants to take it out of service and we're going to get all this silver, fine. And so they allow him to buy it. And we know that's where Abraham was buried, Sarah was buried, Isaac was buried, Rebekah was buried, Jacob was buried, and Leah was buried, all. And we know about Rachel's tomb and how she was buried in, in Bethlehem, I believe. And I could be wrong. If I'm wrong, you can correct me later about it. But this is, a, this is the people of God have always buried or, or, or chosen a place of burial for their dead. Pagan cultures, on the other hand, have made practices or normalized practices disposing of bodies like trash, burning them. You know, it's not right to burn or mar your body while you're alive. Okay? God has said not to do that. This, this is something God has given us. We're made in the image of God. We're not to disfigure ourselves, to burn, to mar, or otherwise harm our body, dead or alive. And so this idea that is, is pushed in, in, in the industry, if you will, of burial and death that we ought to, to make compost of, of human beings is foreign to the Bible. The body represents the image of God and is sacred in that sense, even though we're waiting for resurrection. So we bury our dead. And the people of God have always done so, pagans not so. But in our society, it's, we're increasingly becoming pagan, even as it relates to death and dead bodies. Another way of what I'm trying to tell you is that death is unnatural. It is unnatural. There was, at creation, there was no death. It was not natural to people. And so there's a false narrative that goes on in funeral homes and the American um, marketing scheme to to give you a bunch of slogans and cliches in order for you to think that death is natural. It is not part and parcel of living. You see, the mass marketing people say things like, oh, it's just the circle of life. Maybe you remember a Disney movie that said that. It is not the circle of life. No. Or they'll say dying is just a part of living. No, living is living. Dying is not part of living. It's not an experience that's just along the way. 
Death is natural as breathing. No, it's not. You see, what they've done is they've anesthetized us against death. And I'm all for hospice and making people comfortable, but they basically made people comfortable in such a way that people don't actually really see death anymore in the sense of what it really is. It's a very unnatural thing. It's, it's rending swollen and body. And, it, and we're not meant to be disembodied. And, and so this is an unnatural occurrence where, where the soul and the body are separated from one another. And to say that it's natural, or they'll say things like this. Well, they're just going back where they came from. And you're thinking, I don't know. The Bible says they're either going to hell or they're going to be with the Lord. They'll say things like this. Uh, you know, they're still watching us. They're still here. No. Well, that's not what the Bible says. It says that in the uh, you know, story of, of, of Lazarus and the rich man, it says that the angels bore Lazarus to Abraham's bosom and that the rich man, being in hell, lifted up his eyes in torment. That's what the Bible says. Adam wasn't born to die or created to die. Death was not in part of creation. It's a result of sin. It's a curse on us. So we ought not to, to, to surround it with cliches. And, you know, I'm thankful as a pastor the sense I haven't had to do a funeral yet. Thanks for not dying. Because <laughs> I don't want you to die. Um, but I haven't had to do one. Uh, I certainly, you know, precious in the sight of the Lord are the death of his saints. So we can gather around a dearly uh, beloved brother or sister in Christ and rejoice that they're with the Lord and that someday they'll have a resurrected body. And, and, and so we'll see them again. You know, like David said of um, the, the child, you know, um, I, I can go to him, but he, he cannot come to me. So we can look forward to our home going as well. But you, you, in the case of the person that you really don't know, you, you just can't fill the air with a bunch of cliches about them to make everybody feel better. Now, I'm not saying you have to be the meanest that you can possibly be. Just preach the gospel. That's all you can really do is just tell people. My father-in-law said it this way who's Pastor Costantino, he says, when I get in that situation, I just say, I don't know where your loved one is, but I do know this. If he were here, this is what he'd want you to know. And then he just preaches the gospel. And he said to preach the funerals of his friends that he grew up with, that died, many young, because of their lifestyles. And they say, oh, you know, Dave, my father-in-law, he became a preacher. Have him do the funeral. And he says, I'm not going to tell you one way or the other, but I'm going to tell you this. We know, based on that story of Lazarus and, and the rich man, that the, that the rich man in hell said, let me go and tell my five brothers and warn them not to go to this place. So that's what he would, anybody, whether they're in hell or heaven, would want you to know is that you need to be saved. 
You don't need to enter into death unknowing of your eternal destiny. You ought to settle that matter, make peace with God. As I told people yesterday, I said there were some rough calls yesterday. And in those cases, we often just go back to Amos and say, prepare to meet thy God. Prepare to meet thy God. That's all you can really say if they want to shoo it away. Any scriptures that tell us that the death is unnatural, well, we won't tarry much longer here, but 1 Corinthians 15, 25, and 26, just to prove my point. Death is our enemy. Okay, It's not natural. It's not peaceful. It's, it's not, you know part of life, part and parcel to the human experience. Like it's, it's like papered over as an experience that kind of completes all the experiences of living. Not so, according to the Apostle Paul. Verse 25 of 1 Corinthians 15 says, For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Speaking of Jesus, the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. It's our enemy. But never in the new Jerusalem will someone get a spade and shovel and dig a grave. Never again will anyone die. Oh, there'll be tears at a funeral. Well, that was just to set up the idea of the importance of graves. Let us continue here with our text in the message in Jesus' application. He says that the corruption inside the Pharisees, and you can imagine that maybe some of the Pharisees like to dress in white. <laughs> so the, it's too rich, really. See these guys in white? They're like those graves you pass by, all shiny and white, and inside full of putrid, decomposing flesh. Whoa. That is really rich. And what is that likened to? You even twenty-eight. Even so, ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. So, dead men's bones and all uncleanness, putrefied flesh, are likened in Jesus' uh, example to hypocrisy and iniquity. Now, the word iniquity here uh, translates for us. Uh, nomaios. So, noma in the Bible, commandment or law. Ah uh, means no. But we have to understand that given this context, the lawless can mean pagan. Like, don't know the law. Never heard of the law. Live without the law. But that's not the Pharisees. They were lawyers. So they knew the law, but they despised it by the way they, they, they ignored the, the matters of the law that pertained to their, um, that would, would condemn them. And so they actually were despisers of God's law. They were lawless in the sense that they never applied it to themselves. They knew it. They had knowledge of it, but they never applied it to themselves. Let that never be said of us, who know God's law, but don't apply it. Of course, no Pharisee 
with their obsession with uncleanness and cleanliness, would ever touch a dead body. They would not do that. They lived by a strict code of cleanliness, which they even constructed over the Bible, such that they washed cup and platter so to rid themselves of any pollution, of death, or worse yet, Gentile filth. But look at how great their crime is. And Jesus is, he's, he's a, He's a prosecuting attorney here. And he's saying, this is what you are, but he's driving at something. He's convicting them of their greatest crime. And he's doing this in the next woe, but as we move into this, you have to think about what they look like on the outside, but how putrid they are on the inside. So much so that he's going to tell them that you're witnesses in verse 31 unto yourselves. You're actually witnessing right now. You're making the case for me. But how? Let's look at um, John 18. Jesus is looking forward a couple days. And what this hypocrisy in iniquity look like, we can see probably the greatest example in John 18, 28. Now, now they've arrested and arraigned Jesus, and so they're going to have Pilate, the Roman governor, do their dirty work and put him to death. And so, verse 28 says, Then led they Jesus from Caiaphas unto the hall of judgment. And it was early, and they themselves went not into the judgment hall, lest they should be defiled, but that they might eat the Passover. See how rich it is? They're basically saying, these white-robed Pharisees, they're about ready to walk into Pilate with Jesus, and they stop right here. And they say, whoa, if we take one more step, we're going to enter the abode of Pilate, who's a Gentile. And if we take one more step, we'll be ceremonially and ritually unclean, and we won't be able to eat the Passover. So this is their, cond- their condemnation, their crime, is that they're so concerned with appearances and cleanliness and defilement that they won't cross this imaginary line of defilement. So they're saying to Pilate, the Roman governor, you need to come out and talk to us. And Pilate comes out and says, what do you want? We want you to kill him. Now, so it's a sin to go like this, but it's not a sin to kill someone? It's not a sin, you know, in, in their mind, it's sinful that they would even touch the ground where Gentile sinners walk to defile themselves, these whitewashed graves, but inside of them is the blood thirsty, murderous intent to get this Roman to kill Jesus, who is innocent. No problem with that. 
that's the height of their crime. That's the height of their iniquity and hypocrisy, is to be so concerned with not eating the Passover that they won't pass over this, this imaginary line. Yet they cross every line that God's ever drawn to bring an innocent man to murder. And to do it, have someone else to do the dirty work for them so that they can wash their hands and eat their Passover. It's the height. It's the, it's the crime of all time that they're about to commit. And Jesus says, I know that you're going to do it. I know what's in your heart right now. You're murderers. And the blood of your fathers that murdered from Abel to Zacharias is running through you right now and you're so bloodthirsty you're going to kill me but yet you look like you're ready for the most holy day of the year. That's what he's telling them. Verse 29, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous, and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore, ye, witness, ye be witnesses unto yourselves that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Beware of moralizing. See, they're so rich, they're looking the part of holy men, even while they're hiring a hitman to kill Jesus, essentially. Won't cross the line to go into his hall because of their concern about defilement, but not worried that any of this murder business is going to stick to them. All the while, what they're saying is, and this is the problem about moralizing, saying, I would never, we would never do something. Beware, because if you're going to say that, you're probably going to do it. The Bible has a verse that we've all memorized. You know, he that thinketh he standeth, take heed, lest he fall. And so they, much like, you know, the Roman Catholics in man-made religion, venerated the tombs of dead prophets and righteous men. In fact, many believe that under construction at the base of the Mount of Olives was a mini um, kind of Mount Rushmore that was being constructed over the tombs of various prophets. And you can read different things, but they had this way. See, the Pharisees always liked to enlarge everything. That was the big part of what they would do. And they enlarged, is the word here, the understanding, the tombs, made big the tombs of the prophets. You know the ones that their fathers, the religious leaders of Israel, slaughtered. Isaiah, you know, who was sawn in half. Jeremiah, who was thrown in a pit. And, and so they're about to do it to the greatest prophet, the greatest preacher of all time. They're even worse, and they were saying, but if we were alive back then, we would never, never think to persecute. While they've hatched a plot that's already in motion to kill Jesus. That's how self-deceived they are. So, and we all have to be careful about 
declaring one to another those things that we would never do. You know, you might say, I would never set foot in a bar. But would you watch shows that are set in one? And comedies? And laugh? You might say, well, I would never set foot in a seedy joint, club, but will you watch movies that were set in them and see pictures taken in them? You say, well, I, I would never you know, put my, my lips on a bottle of booze, but, but are you caught up in the riot and, and, and the drunkenness in some form or fashion? I'm just saying, you be very careful. These Pharisees were so self-deceived that they were saying, we would never be persecutors like our fathers, even while the greatest persecution of all time, the murder of Jesus Christ, was on their mind. And they never saw the duplicity of it. How self-deceived can we be? They're so self-deceived that they're reprobate at this time, and that's what he means when he says, fill ye up. He commands them, go for it. Just do what you're going to do. This is basically what Jesus said to Judas. What thou doest, do quickly. I know murder's in your heart. Your, your funny outfits don't fool me one bit. You know, it does remind me a little bit about Roman Catholicism in the sense that, um, you know, you remember John Wycliffe, who was one of the earliest translators, 14th century, to translate... Uh, the Bible into the English tongue. And he was persecuted by religious people. You ever notice how religious people can be the worst persecutors? Because we often think that the worst persecutor is that guy that's heckling us, or that, that guy that's, a, that's, a, that's a, a, you know, going to throw a bottle of booze at us or something. But if we're all honest and we've watched life and observed it for a while, it's actually the people who once sat with us in church, who once claimed the name of God, who turn their back like Judas and become the worst. And, and, and you know, I, I've endured very little persecution in my life, but almost none of it. It's like water off a duck's back if it's from people I don't know. But the ones from the people that I do. Psalm 55 speaks David here. Speaking about the pain of persecution from those that claim to worship the same God. Some of the worst pain that David ever felt was this kind of pain. And he, he talks about it here in verse 12. For it was not an enemy that reproached me. Then I could have borne it. Neither was it he that hated me that did magnify himself against me. Then I would have hid myself from him. But it was thou, a man mine equal, my guide and mine acquaintance, we took sweet counsel together and walked under the house of God in company. We all know that the worst persecution is from people who claim to be Christians, who claim to worship with us, who are right alongside us, but some might get sideways of us or the church, and then they let it rip. 
vitriol. And these Pharisees claimed to worship the same God. We're in the same temple, the same religion, if you will, Second Temple Judaism as Jesus. But they hated him more than the Romans did. With, a, with, with an unbelievable hatred and envy. We'll even see this as we go into Matthew 24, um, where it talks about in the tribulation period how people will turn and betray each other. It says in verse 10 of 24, And they then shall many be offended and shall betray one another, shall hate one another. And many false prophets shall rise and shall deceive many, and because iniquity shall abound, the love of many shall wax cold. I gave you the example of Wycliffe. He was a Catholic priest that discovered from his own study that there were a false religion. And he began to say, we need the Bible in people's own language. And so Wycliffe began to translate the Bible into English. And when he did so, the Catholic um, powers that be took his friends and said, you can no longer consort with Wycliffe. He's a heretic. And all his friends turned on him because they didn't want to leave the English Catholic Church. It broke his heart, and he had a stroke. And it started a series of strokes, the last one taking his life. And after he died, the Catholics had excommunicated him, but they hadn't had a chance to kill him, for which they were sorry and sad. So they exhumed his body, digging it up, and burned it at the stake as an example for what happens when you cross them. Two centuries later, William Tyndale, another English-speaking person, followed in Wycliffe's footsteps and said, we need to have a Bible in the tongue of common people that they can know what the Bible says, and once they see what the Bible says, they'll throw off this horrible religion. So Tyndale said about translating the Bible into English, and he did it. And it's a wonderful translation. It, it, it's in some ways the pre-predecessor um, of our King James Bible. In 1536, he was convicted of heresy and executed by strangulation, after which his body was burnt at the stake, after he was dead. That's how much they hate people. Religious people, the, the so-called establishment. And you realize these are the people that bring about the worst vitriol. And the Pharisees were that. They looked religious. They had all the power in their hands for this time. Jesus was, in their sense, a threat, one to be um, destroyed, stamped out, because he threatened their place, their position, their power. So they're about to do this most heinous crime. Well, Jesus says in verse 31, Wherefore, ye be witnesses unto yourselves. You know what you're doing. You know inside of you. You're plotting and planning right now to kill me. I know it, and you know it too. And you know what? I'm bringing you to the stand against yourself. What a prosecuting attorney here. The greatest evidence for the fact that you're hypocrites is right now you're planning to kill me, and you know it. Death and, and, and 
defilement is in your heart. You want me dead. You're a witness against yourself. So he says, do it. I'm done with you. Just go ahead and do it. Your time has come to fill up the full measure. The blood of those that killed the prophets runs through your veins. Do what you need to do, just as he said to Judas. Well, how do we bring this to a conclusion? Like I said, beware of saying, you know, if I were there, I wouldn't have done it. Sometimes we like to say that about Adam. You know, if I were in the garden and the snake came in, I would have just told him to go away. I wouldn't have fallen for that. But the Bible says you would have. Because we all sinned in Adam. He was our head in so many ways. Our, and we're him, and he's us. We all would have done it. And you know what? If we were there in Jesus' day, we would have said, crucify him crucify him. So before we get on our own platitudes, we would have been caught up in the frenzy. We would have been caught up in in all that was going on. We would have done the same thing. We're just as guilty. Our hand is on the trigger just as much as them. We all kill Jesus by our sins, by our rejection of God, by our pride, by our transgression of the law. We're all guilty. They're not, they are unique, but they're not totally unique in their guilt. Because you, before you were saved, if you're, not, if, you're, if you're saved today, you know that you persecuted people. And you would persecute people. And if you're not saved, you need to get saved. Because the guilt of the death of Jesus is on you. And we would put him to open shame, the Bible says in Hebrews, if we don't accept so great a salvation. Turn with me, if you will, as we close to 1 Timothy 1. And I point you to a persecutor. If you don't believe that persecution, that any of us and all of us have the ability to persecute someone, just know that the Hebrew of Hebrews, the Benjamite, the Pharisee, the zealous, For the God of his fathers tells us of his career in verse 1. He says, who was before a blasphemer. That's us. And a persecutor. That's us. And injurious. That's us. But I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom 
I am chief. It's all of us right there. Praise God for his grace that he offers freely and for his blood that flowed and for him being willing to say, do it. Put me on the cross because he died for every one of those people that was standing before him. Scribes, Pharisees, and every single person that's ever lived. His blood flowed for them. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who became sin for us, who knew no sin, who died the just for the unjust, who said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do to those that nailed him to the tree. And with a loud voice at the end of his hours on the cross cried out, it is finished. And the, the tapestry that separated the Holy of Holies and the temple was ripped in twain from top to bottom. And now we have access to the throne of God. But along with access, Father, we have no excuse anymore. For Jesus has made the way to God. Help us to take the way. We pray in Jesus' name.